welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. I'm Robbo. I'm here as always with Cheeto. Hello. And in this episode, we're going to talk about sleep hit movies or surprise hit movies. So that's movies that uh, were low budget but made a lot of money or sleeper hits that uh, didn't make a lot of money when they were initially released but made money over time. Um, so I'm going to start. And I'm my first film is Borat or Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. And that's a 2006 film directed by Larry Charles. Uh, the budget was $18 million and it made $262.6 million at the box office. Now, Borat made his debut on the Ali G show, starring Sasha Baron Cohen. And Borat is one of uh, Cohen's characters. He's a reporter from Kazakhstan, and in character he would naively ask questions that were hugely misogynistic or anti-Semitic. So when they announced that film would be made, people were a little bit nervous about the turnout, because essentially it's trying to turn a 10-minute sketch into a like a 90-minute film. Would it, would it translate well? Um, and particularly as it's a British film, a British TV show, would the humour translate? Because that, that's quite quite often um, TV shows that have, that have been made into films don't don't often work. No. So it was filmed as a mockumentary, and much of the film was unscripted. Vignettes of Borat interviewing and interacting with real life Americans who actually believe he's a foreigner with or no understanding of American customs. So basically, they weren't told that this was a, a you know mockumentary. They actually thought it was real. And there's actually a scene where he visits a rodeo and he's allowed to sing the national anthem and he sings the Kazakhstan national anthem lyrics to the tune of the US national anthem. And it almost caused a riot. People almost lynched him. Um, so that was kind of how the film was structured. Um there was a lot of controversy surrounding the film prior to and after the film's release. Um, some of the participants actually spoke out and even sued the creators because they, they felt that they were being used. Um, and also it was banned in almost all Arab countries as well. <laughs> as you can imagine, the, the government of Kazakhstan denounced the film, uh, but it did make $262.6 million at the box office so it was oh, yeah. um, a surprise a huge hit. amount of money. A surprise hit film. Mm. That's my first. Right, yeah. No, I love that film, boy. <laughs> um, right, my first is Forrest Gump, and um, it's it's weird this one because it may you'd think how could it be a sleep hit when it made so much money, but um, there's a couple of reasons why it was a sleep hit. So. Forrest Gump is a 1994 drama film directed by Robert Zemeckis and written by Eric Roth. It is based on a 1986 novel of the same name by Woodson Groom. It stars Tom Hanks, Robin Wright, Gary Sinise, Mikkel T. Williamson and Sally Field. And the story depicts several decades in the life of Forrest Gump, played by Hanks, a slow-witted but kind-hearted man from Alabama who witnesses and unwittingly influences several defining historic events in the 20th century United States. Right. Forrest Gump was made at a budget of $55 million dollars and it made $683.1 million for a total gross of $628.1 million. And now, Paramount Pictures actually marketed Forrest Gump in a way that would make it a sleeper hit. So what I'm trying to say is they, they planned beforehand to, 
to almost make it a sleeper here. I don't know why they decided to do this. Um, Paramount released sneak previews of the film a couple of weeks prior to the release. This is so potential moviegoers would not feel obliged to see a heavily promoted film. Forrest Gump received decent but not great reviews upon release. 75% of, of the critics on the review website Rotten Tomatoes gave the film a positive review, while others absolutely panned it. Forrest Gump grossed $24.5 million on its opening weekend in the United States and Canada. Paramount removed the film from release in the United States when its gross hit $300 million in January 1995. This is heavily speculated to do with the film not doing as well up to the, this point as they'd hoped for. The film was reissued on February 17, 1995, after the Academy Award nominations were announced. Paramount's plan was simple. If Forrest Gump performed well at the Oscars, then the film would gross even more at the box office. This strategy worked. Forrest Gump won Best Picture, Best Actor in the Leading Role, Best Director, Best Visual Effects, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Film Editing at the 67th Academy Awards. The film was nominated for seven Golden Globe Awards, winning three of them. Best Actor, Motion Picture Drama, Best Director of Motion Picture, and Best Motion Picture Drama. The film was also nominated for six Saturn Awards and won two for the Best Fantasy Film and Best Supporting Actor. Forrest Gump once again hit the box of his highs of when it first released. One more reason why it did well is because of home video. Forrest Gump was released on VHS on April 27, 1995 and on Laserdisc the following day. These are the many reasons why Forrest Gump is considered a sleeper hit because after this... It made the bulk of its money in its second run as well. And it took, actually, for it to hit, I believe, its overall gross, it took a short amount of time than it to hit its first 200 million. So that's why it's considered a sleeper hit. Wow. So, and the film didn't do it as well as they thought they did at the start. So, I remember seeing it in cinemas when it opened. Yeah. And um, I think... It, People are a little bit confused by the, the actual title of the film. Yeah. Because I, I can't remember there being a lot of marketing around it. So I don't think people actually understood what the film was going to no. be about. You think Forrest, is, what, is it Senna Forrest or what? You didn't, yeah. didn't realise it was the name of a guy. Um, so, yeah, I think I think I went in to watch, it, to watch it, not really knowing what to expect, what type of film it was. I don't know why they chose this, this strategy. I yeah. mean, it obviously worked, but... Uh, you see this a lot with film studios. They they take the film off of like the, the circuit of yeah. theatres, and then hope for a good running at the you know, the Academy Awards, and yeah. then they put it back on yeah. based on that. So yeah. that's where it made a lot of its money from. So it's, I mean, it's it's considered now. A, a oh, it's considered one of the best films. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. So, so. but that just goes to show, doesn't it? That that you know. Any, anything can be like some. You look at some of the best films of all time. They were they were probably yeah. panned when yeah. they came out, weren't they? So, okay, cool. That's interesting. Uh, so the my next film is Lost in Translation, which is a two thousand and three sort of romantic com well romantic comedy, I guess, directed by Sofia Coppola, and it, a budget of four million, um, and it had a box office of one hundred eighteen point seven million. And the plot is really, it's Bill Murray stars as Bob Harris. He's a fading American movie star and he's having a midlife crisis and he travels to Tokyo to promote Suntory whiskey. So like a lot of, um, like a lot of celebrities will do, they'll go off and make um, adverts in other countries knowing that they're not going to be shown back in the, in mm. the US. So it's Sophia Coppola, um, the daughter the, yeah, of Francis Ford, Ford Coppola, yeah. yeah. 
Um, she was actually in Godfather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard about not that. On that. Yeah, I've heard about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there, um, he befriends another estranged American named Charlotte, a young woman and recent college graduate played by Scarlett Johansson. Um, and they kind of start this... It's not, it's not really... You can't really describe it as a romance. It's more because it's... The film explores themes of alienation and disconnection against a backdrop of cultural displacement in Japan. So they kind of feel like they're, um, they're sort of odd ones out in a, in the Japanese culture. Um, and so they, they instantly kind of uh, warm to each other and they start hanging out together. And uh, I suppose you could you could call it a romance, but obviously there's the massive age difference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you, on the face of it, you've got sort of an up-and-coming Sophia Coppola. I think she'd only ever made one film before this. Mm. Bill Murray, who's, you know, who'd not really done a lot um, up to that point. I mean, and Scarlett Johansson, who was still in the early part of her career. And it, it really wasn't a group that got many people excited about the film. Um, it started being shown at various film festivals and then it's sort of word of mouth. Um, it got round that it was a quality film with great performances. Um and the relationship between Murray and Jackie Hansen's character it seemingly infected people in different ways. And the, the, have you seen the film? No, no I've seen it. There's um, there's a scene at the end where they're they're going their own ways, um, and Murray kisses Johansson, and he whispers something in her ear, um, which is never revealed. So that's kind of you know a point of discussion as yeah. well. Um, it fared better internationally than in the US, but I mean, you, you can imagine, you know, from a four million dollar budget, it, it returned, you know, one hundred eighteen million, yeah. which is nearly fifty times yeah, its, <laughs> its, its budget. Um, so it opened in twenty three theaters in major cities, including New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, and then after that success, it was expanded. The next week, two hundred eighty-three theaters. Mm. So yeah, it's 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 a good film. Um, it's well worth watching if you haven't already seen it, and definitely a um, definitely a surprise a surprise yeah. hit. And just on that budget alone, you can see yeah. now compared yeah. how much it made. So, right, my next one is Halloween, and uh, <laughs> Halloween is a nineteen seventy-eight independent slasher film directed and scored by John Carpenter. Co-written with producer Deborah Hill and starring Donald Pleasance and Jamie Lee Curtis in her film debut. The plot tells about a mental patient who was committed to a sanitarium for murdering his babysitting teenage sister on Halloween night when he was six years old. Fifteen years later, he escapes and returns to his hometown, where he stalks a female babysitter and her friends, while under pursuit from his psychiatrist. And now, Halloween was made on a budget of $300,000 around there, which is absolutely nothing, and it made $70 million. For a total gross of sixty nine point seven million, which was at the time it was for a long time it held the highest grossing independent film of all time. It held that bracket for for quite a few number of years. Uh Halloween premiered on October twenty fifth, nineteen seventy eight in downtown Kansas City, Missouri, at the MC Empire Theatre. Regional distribution in the Philadelphia and New York metropolitan areas was acquired by Aquarius Releasing. It grossed 
1.2 million from 198 theatres across the US, including 72 in New York City and 98 in Southern California in its opening week. The film grossed $47 million in the United States and an additional $23 million internationally, making the theatrical total $70 million. One making it one of the most successful independent films of all time. Upon its release, Halloween performed well with little advertising, relying mostly on word of mouth, but many critics seemed uninterested or dismissive of the film. It's very simple why Halloween is considered a sleep hit. One of the reasons is these reviews help people keep out of the cinema. Pair this with a complete production of unknowns, the only personal note was Donald Pleasance. Plus it was released in a relatively smaller number of theatres. None of these helped the box office returns. As it turns out though, Halloween is another film in the long list of films panned by critics but loved by audiences. As more and more people saw it, word spread, eventually putting Halloween into the limelight. It, became, it almost became the movie to see in 1978. It became the movie. Although some of the factors previously mentioned are the reasons that it only grows to 8 million. Today is considered a classic and one of the best horror movies ever made. So, Yeah, it gets shown every Halloween, doesn't yeah, it? Once, once yeah, once again, it, it's... Yeah. Word of mouth is a, is a strong thing, and um, this is the reason why you shouldn't always listen to critics because there's there's so many films where they've been absolutely panned by critics and loved by audiences, and yeah. there's loads of films where audiences don't like but critics love. Yeah. So, and then later on, critics have to reevaluate. Yeah, know, yeah, the film and actually, <laughs> then they they actually like it. Well, I saw an article with with the Forrest Gump thing. Yeah, they um, basically said that they were completely wrong right. and everything. So they yeah. do change. I know um, Halloween was ultra low budget, wasn't it? They, they yeah. had to film it in California. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's supposed to be in Haddonfield in Illinois. Illinois. And so I think they had to bring in leaves, didn't they? Yeah, because, in a bag. Yeah, cause, they, they'd chuck them out in a scene, yeah. pick them up, up again and then... Yeah, because obviously the leaves in California, the trees didn't show yeah. their leaves. No. Um, we're talking ultra ultra yeah. low budget yeah. like people because it's such a big move people think it had this huge but when it didn't add three hundred thousand dollars we had less than a million which is just yeah. mental and the the mask they had to make themselves out of a, a captain kirk mask in there yeah it was a, it was a two dollar captain kirk mask from the um costume shop down the, down the road yeah. and they just painted it and tussled the hair up and yeah it, it was like a i don't know how this film worked because that's yeah. everything going against it but I think there's the simplicity of this film made it work so because there's, there's a scene in there where they're walking past a, a hedge and yeah. you see smoke come out the back of yeah that's James, John Carpenter, John Carpenter smoke. smoking so whether whether they didn't have the budget to reshoot that scene or, or whatever it's just had yeah. to keep it in yeah but yeah, it's, it's well, obviously I think having Donald Pleasance as well having a marquee name does sometimes yeah, yeah, help yeah. to sell it but what happens as well is it's a really good film yeah, yeah, like I said, um, it's considered an absolute classic, isn't it? I know it, so. it's kind of the first of the, considered like the first of like the slasher genre yeah. horror film, and maybe at the time critics didn't like that. Um, it, it takes sometimes takes time to to settle into into. Um, this is the thing. It took it took ages for it to actually people start coming to the cinema, because like I said, um, the only person of 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 note was Donald Pleasance and um when and when word spread of the people that actually went to see this film, that's when people started going to see this film and it made a boatload of money yeah. after 
people actually started seeing the film, yeah. so it makes sense. Because traditionally, the way of releasing the film is you open in a, a small number of theatres, you let kind of word of mouth get out, and then as the demand grows, you, you open up more and more theatres. So it's a slow building yeah. process. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting film. So my next film is The Blair Witch Project. Um, it's a 1999 horror film directed by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. Uh, the budget was somewhere between $200,000 and $750,000. Um, this is $1,000. <laughs> and the box office was $248.6 million. Wow. Um, it's, you've, you've seen Yeah, I've yeah. seen it. Yeah. So it's, it's a fictional story. You've got three student filmmakers. They hike into the Black Hills near Burkittsville, which is previously known as Blair, and they're filming a documentary uh, about this local legend called the Blair Witch. Um, the three disappear, but their equipment and footage are discovered a year later, and this purportedly recovered footage or found film is a film that the viewers see. Um, Myrick and Sanchez conceived uh, the fictional legend of the Blair Witch in 1993, and they developed a 35-page screenplay with the dialogue to be improvised. Uh, the film entered into production in October 1997, and the photography took place in Maryland, and it took eight days, only eight days to film. Um, they filmed 20 hours of footage, and that was edited down to 82 minutes. Uh, the original budget was thirty-five to $60,000, and it had a final cost, like I said, of about two hundred to $750,000 after post-production edits. Um, although this is, a lot of people think this is kind of the first found footage technique. Um, it isn't. The first one is the 1980 cult horror feature, Cannibal Holocaust. Mm. But it is heavily credited with reviving the genre, and it's it's one that's probably most most copied now. Yeah. Um, well, Cannibal Holocaust, you can't even watch that, can you? No. <laughs> no, no one watch. No one can watch it because I, I believe the police thought it was real, didn't they, or something? Yeah. And they they banned it. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So this this film was really because the the obviously um, the budget they had to come up with ingenious ways of marketing the film, and it's this is the first film that really used the internet and viral marketing. And so they produced like missing actual missing posters a website that was dedicated to finding the students. And that's kind of, they were trying to maintain this illusion that this was actually real. And I think even, I remember going to see it, and even before you saw it, you you, wouldn't, you still weren't sure whether this was actually a, a real event or not. Um, and they actually came up with, um, two days before the opening, there was a, a documentary was broadcast on the Sci-Fi Channel called The Curse of the Blair Witch. And it presents the legend as real, complete with manufactured newspaper articles, newsreels, television news reports, and staged interviews. So it, it was um, it, it was made as an actual documentary so that would that would um, that would lend credence to the actual film being real. Um, and I, I thought it was you know it's it is really really uh, smart the way yeah. that they did it. Um, well, I watched it when I was younger, and I yeah. thought it was real. So I mean, it's it's, it's it's well shot, and like I say, it's because it was kind of the first, first real, f 
found footage film. You you were never quite sure were you that no that, that it wasn't real. Yeah. Um but yeah, it was it's to make uh, I mean it it's it spawned a lot of copies. Um Eduardo Sanchez went on to make uh, a film called Exists, which is a Bigfoot film, which again is found footage film. But you, you, you tend to find that, that a lot of low-budget horror films tend to be that found footage now. Yeah. Um, so its legacy just still still lives on. Um, yeah, well, of course, it's had, it's had a um, sequel in the last yeah, couple of years, hasn't it? Wasn't which it wasn't very great. Good, no. And they did a, I think they did a reboot or a remake um, within the last five years or so. I remember seeing... Um, I think it was a reboot or a remake. Yeah. No, it was a reboot because it was it was actually a sequel to the original film, I think. But yeah, that didn't that. I think once you've done it, you can't really yeah. do it again because because I think a lot. The reason a lot of people went went to this film is due to the concept of found footage. Yeah. And once you do, once you've already done that, it kind yeah. of yeah. Yeah, it kind of detracts from the actual film. Yeah. But, mm. Um. My next film was American Beauty, and it's a 1999 comedy drama film written by Alan Ball and directed by Sam Mendes. Kevin Spacey stars as Lester Burnham, an advertising executive, executive who has a midlife crisis when he becomes infatuated with his teenage daughter's best friend, played by Mina Suvari. Annette Benning stars as Lester's materialistic wife, Carolyn, and Thora Birch plays their insecure daughter, Jane. West Bentley, Chris Cooper and Alison Jenny also feature. American Beauty was made in a budget of $15 million. It made $356.3 million for a total gross of $341.3 million. On September 15, 1999, American Beauty opened to the public in limited release at three theatres in Los Angeles and three in New York. More theatres were added during the limited run and on October 1st, the film officially entered wide release by screening in 106 theatres across North America. The film grossed $8 million over the weekend, ranking third at the box office. Audiences polled by the market research firm CinemaScore gave American Beauty a B-plus grade, on average. The theatre count hit a high of 1,528 at the end of the month, before gradual decline. Like Forrest Gump, a lot of the reasons why American Beauty is considered a sleeper hit is because it made its money over a long amount of time. Once again, due to Luke, warm reviews from critics and an odd marketing strategy involving Amazon making their own website, this added to a gradual decline in theatre showings. Another reason why people weren't seeing this film is because it was perceived to be a very confusing film. Um, word of mouth is strong and this notion spread across the country. Following American Beauty's wins at the 57th Golden Globe Awards, DreamWorks re-expanded the theatre presence from a low of 7 in mid-February to a high of 1,990 in March. The film ended this North American theatrical run on June 4, 2000, having grossed 130.1 million. American Beauty had its European premiere at the London Film Festival on November 18, 1999. In January 2000, it began to screen in various territories outside North America. With its wins at the 72nd Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Director, Best Writing, and Best Cinematography, this helped boost its box office returns in the continent. So once again, it had a, a de- you know, eight millions in all white, all white number. It wasn't like, it, it was wasn't anywhere near to what DreamWorks expected. So they gradually pulled it from the cinemas and waited for the the Oscar nominations again. 
mm-hmm. and then they released it in yeah. nearly 2,000 cinemas. And this is, seems to be a strategy, a very common yeah. strategy. And with it basically sweeping that year's Oscars, it then... Well, they needed, they needed to get out to be included in that year's Oscar nomination, yeah. doesn't it? And then they can they can take it out of cinemas. Pull it out and then put it back in. And then if it does well, it's, they can put the thing, it in. It's a gamble, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It really is. But yeah. luckily, it, like I said, it swept that year's Academy Awards yeah. and then they, really, they actually released it in more cinemas than they initially released it in. And then it made the bulk of its money yeah. after that, you know, because it can put on that that best picture yeah. tagline onto yeah. it, you know. So, but yeah, it's it's, it's odd because when I was researching, there's all these huge films like American Beauty and all that, yeah. and I didn't expect them to be there. So I just thought they made money from the off when they really didn't. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the fact that they even had to pull it from the cinema as yeah. well, which is just a shocking. It's like you know the fact they they release limited release in a, in a small number of theaters mm. just to get in that year's Oscar. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. I said, it was Los Angeles in New York. Yeah, but yeah, it's, like I said, it's a total gamble pulling yeah. it from the cinema and relying on the Oscars, but yeah. it worked this time. So, yeah. cool. Right, uh, my next film is Rocky, nineteen seventy six. Uh, boxing film directed by John G. Avildsen. Um, a budget of $960,000, it made $225 million. Um, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm assuming that these figures are worldwide uh, from the yeah. initial, initial two, release. I think 225 is, is probably yeah. worldwide. Uh, because back then, um, films would generally get released in, in the US first and then would be released... Or you know the rest of the world afterwards. I think the reason why is it due to pirating. Pir- yeah, due, due to piracy, um, they they have a tend to have a, a release at the same time yeah. now. So, Rocky, we all know it tells the rags to riches American dream story of Rocky Balboa, an uneducated, kind-hearted working-class Italian-American boxer, working as a debt collector for a loan shark in the slums of Philadelphia. Um. He's a small-time uh, club fighter, and he, he then gets a shot at the World Heavyweight Championship. This is that typical rags-to-riches yeah. dream story. Back in the 70s, this is the early 70s, Sylvester Stallone was a struggling actor looking for his big break in the business. One night, he actually went to see Muhammad Ali fight Chuck Webner, who was called the Bay- uh, Bayonne Bleeder. Um, and Webner actually lasted against Ali and actually knocked him down. And that gave him the inspiration for the story. So it was actually kind of a real-life event. Yeah, I didn't realise that. Um, he wrote the script in less than four days. And this is just to indicate how desperate he was. He was so broke, he had less than $110 in his bank account. And at one point, he had to sell his dog in order to pay some of his bills. Um, so... Stallone successfully pitched his script to um, a film company and he was even offered $360,000 for the script. However, the caveat was that he, the studio didn't want him to star in the movie, which is something that Stallone wanted to do. So he, he held out. And so eventually the producers would agree to let Stallone star in the film and it gave, gave him a small budget to work with. The... Uh, the outcome of that is that Rocky received 10 Academy Award nominations, winning three, including for Best Picture. And critics consider Rocky one of the greatest sports films ever made. 
and the AFI ranked it as the second best in the genre behind Raging Bull. So that really is. I mean, obviously it spawned um, five sequels. Yeah. Uh, well, four sequels and then a later sequel. Reboot of the... Yeah, which is kind of a reboot. Mm. And then the Creed as well is considered part of the Rocky franchise. Yeah. But, yeah... It, and this is the thing, I know, I know people find, might find this hard to like get their head around, but Sylvester Stone wasn't well-known at all, it was, was it? Unknown, it was, it was, think, it was basically, yeah. a, um, I hate to be like... Um, in a, I don't know a better word, he was like a bum on the side yeah. of the street, wasn't he? Yeah. he? He lived in a tent, I believe, or something like that, and he just... He was... Like, like Robbo said, he had $110. By the way, he did... <laughs> For all you wondering, he did buy his dog back after that, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, when, he did, yeah. That was the first thing he thought yeah. he bought, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. don't worry about that. He got his dog back, but... But, yeah, it's, it's hard to believe that, that yeah, he, he, you know, looking back, that he wasn't, like, a big star like yeah. he is now. Um, and it's, it's funny how a lot of, you know, just fate, I guess, does does intervene. And, um, fact, he wrote the script in four days as well. Yeah. He must have really had the, the idea of, like... Um, really planned out in his head maybe yeah. you know or maybe it's just he was so willing to to be a movie star that he yeah. wanted to write this film so and again it, they, you know, they offered him $360,000 which I think back back then would have been about nearly a million yeah possibly, probably about that yeah even, even more just for the script and he, he could have he could have taken the money and run with it but he held out because he wanted to be in it mm. um, which was probably the best move because yeah, maybe he, he might have been able to um, to make a, a living as a, a scriptwriter, but, but he's made way more money as a yeah. huge movie star now, um, hasn't he? So, but you know, this obviously is his first and only script. I think maybe yeah. he's, that he's he's uh, and he's even made. nowadays he's one of the biggest names in Hollywood, mm-hmm. isn't he? So, and this is where it all started. So yeah, right. My next film is Scream. Um, Scream is a 1996 American meta slasher film directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. The film stars David Arquette, Neve Campbell, Courtney Cox, Matthew Lillard, Rose McGowan and Skeet Ulrich and Drew Barrymore. Barrymore. Released on December 20th, it follows the character of Sidney Prescott, played by Campbell, a high school student in the fictional town of Woodsboro, California, who becomes the target of a mysterious killer in a Halloween costume known as Ghostface. And now Scream is made in a budget of $15 million, it made $173 million for a total gross of $158 million. Scream held its premiere on December 18, 1996 at the AMC Avgo Theatre in Westwood, Los Angeles, California. Bob Weinstein ordered that the film be released on December 20, 1996, a date others were critical of as it was the Christmas period where seasonal and family films were more prevalent. Weinstein argued this fact was in, was in the film's favour as it meant that horror fans and teenagers had nothing interested to watch during the like the December period, only Christmas films. When Scream's first weekend takings amounted to only $6 million, it was considered that this release date gamble had failed. But the following week, takings did not drop, but increased and continued to increase in the following weeks, leading to a total US gross of over $100 million and high critical praise. There are a few different reasons why Scream took a while to get the ball rolling in relation to its box office returns. First of all, it came out in 1996. Slashers were probably the most out-of-film genre at the time. Literally no one wanted a new one. Halloween set off the slasher craze of the 80s, but due to them becoming an outdated concept, and the fact that the slashers released just a few years prior to Scream were laughably bad, these were a few reasons why there was no room for them in 1996. 
Another reason is because, like Halloween, Scream is made up of a, of a production of unknowns, the only notable people being Wes Craven and Henry, Henry Winkler. Wes Craven done this on purpose as he wanted people to watch the film for the film, not for its cast. Another reason, and perhaps the biggest, is because these films were aimed at a certain demographic, late teens and college kids. This greatly reduced the film's box office numbers. Only when people realised how great this film was did other demographics go and see it. Also, a huge reason why people eventually saw this film is because of the very like, new meta concept. And it was a very new concept. I don't think people quite un- understood it. So I think the, the first big film to use this concept was two years prior, and it was another West Crane film called New Nightmare. I believe when it was a... That's a Freddy Krueger film, but it was like... It knew, like, the tropes and the, concept, and the concepts of it. And then Scream came out, and they had a huge marketing thing where uh, they marketed Drew Barrymore as the leading girl in this because she was on the front of all the posters. And spoiler, it's been years, but she's not the main poster. She's only in it for about, what, five minutes of the intro, isn't yeah, she? Yeah. And this, like, I guess you could say it pissed a lot of people off and they spread it around. And like I said, once again, when you target a demographic, because it's targeted at the demographic it doesn't necessarily mean other pe- other people from out of the demographic are going to go and see it. But like once again, down to word of mouth, spread how good the movie actually is, made other people go and watch it, and then it picked up the bulk of his money at the end. So that's why it's on my list. All right. Cool. My next film is not one you think. It's Pulp Fiction, and uh, obviously 1994 film directed by Quentin Tarantino. The budget was eight to eight and a half million. Uh, box office was two hundred thirteen point nine million. Um, and Pulp Fiction is a strange film. It's it's kind of out of sequence. Um, it's got several intertwined vignettes set in criminal Los Angeles. The title refers to the pulp magazines and hardball crime novels popular during the mid twentieth century, known for their graphic violence and punchy dialogue. Now you'd think that. Um, a film that had like John Travolta, Bruce Willis, Uma Thurman, and Samuel L. Jackson in it, directed by Quentin Tarantino, would be like an instant hit. Mm. Um, going back to February '94, Pulp Fiction was appear- appeared on Variety magazine's list of films in pre-production at TriStar. In June, however, the studio put the script into turnaround. And according to a studio executive, TriStar chief Mike Medavoy found it too demented. Because it is a bit of a... Yeah, it's, kind of <laughs> it's just an odd film, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> there were suggestions that TriStar were resistant to back a film featuring heroin use. And they also thought that the project was too low budget, which... Yeah, I mean, 8.5 million. Yeah, maybe they didn't feel that it would, you know, that, that would produce a decent film, I don't mm. know. So then they they brought the film to um, Miramax, which had just been brought out by Disney yeah. at that time, and they greenlit the film. That was the first film that they complete, completely financed themselves. That's the Weinstein Brothers. So um, when it debuted at the Cannes Film Festival, the, the film seemed to come out of nowhere. There was no real marketing behind it. There was no real nothing published in the trade magazines or anything. And according to... Um, critics the Weinsteins hit the beach like commandos and they brought the entire cast over to Cannes and they basically mixed with the critics trying to charm them um, 
and it worked because everyone expected the Palme d'Or to go to Christoph Kislowski's Red, but the Cannes jury, which was actually chaired at that time by Clint Eastwood, gave the Palme d'Or to Pulp Fiction. And off the back of that, um, it actually opened in the 1100 theatres, which is unusual because with sort of indie films, they, like I say, they normally open in a small number of theatres. And they go to where the demand yeah, is. and they, they? they roll out as word of mouth uh, spreads. Done spreads. It, yeah. um, but this opened in 1100 theatres, mm. um, massive success. And I guess I think people are more aware now of the um, the film festivals and of the, the awards. I mean, Pam Darnow is a prestigious mm. award. And that can bring people into a cinema just as much as an Oscar can now, I think. Yeah, because, like you said, the Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival is, is considered like a good indicator yeah, of a film. It is. And I must admit, That's, what, that tends to be like a precursor to the Oscars, yeah, doesn't it? As it does. Well. Yeah. And this thing, what, what that film, what Pulp Fiction did for indie films, that they weren't yeah. just like spat on now, you know, no. that people took note of it. And yeah, it changed how we look at them. So, mm. but yeah, no, really good film. It's probably this is really weird because I didn't realize how or why this was a sleeper hit, but it's Titanic. Really? And you think it made a boatload of money, boat, like it made a boatload of money. Oh, hidden pun, mate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm gonna log myself out now. Um, right, Titanic is a 1997 epic romance and disaster film directed, written, co produced, and co edited by James Cameron, incorporating both historical and fictionalized aspects. Is based on accounts of the sinking of the British passenger line Titanic. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet as members of the different social classes who fall in love aboard the ship during its ill-fated maiden voyage. And now, Titanic was made in a budget of $200 million. It made $2.2 trillion for total growth of $2 trillion. This is the thing. The film received steady attendance after opening in North America Friday, December 19th, 1997. By the end of that same weekend, theatres were beginning to sell out. The film earned $8 million on its opening day and $28 million over the opening weekend from 2,674 theatres, averaging to about 10,000 per, per venue, and ranking number one at the box office ahead of the 18th James Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies. By New Year's Day, Titanic had made over $120 million, had increased in popularity and theatres continued to sell out. Strong word of mouth kept it at number one for 15 consecutive weeks, it like hit number one again over Easter for a total of 16 non-consecutive weeks. From Christmas to Easter, Titanic stayed in number one spot for all but one weekend, the weekend of April 3rd to 5th, where it was dethroned by Lost Space. It ended up grossing $600 million domestic in its original run. Once again, it swept that year's Oscars. And in doing so, it made the bulk of its money. So once again, if you think, it made $2 trillion, but up till, I think, yeah, up to New Year's Day, it only made $120 million. And it was then after, once again, the Oscars, it, I think it won 11 of the 14 Oscars it was um, nominated for. And then it made the other, I don't know, $1.9 trillion after that, which is just astronomical numbers. But yeah, this is, that's, that's why it's considered a um, sleeper hit because one, it, it, like I said, it, I can't, like, for a normal film, like 120 million is really good. Yeah. But the fact that it's it's barely anything in its actual overall gross numbers. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that in the new year it made, like I said, about what, $1.8 trillion, which is just absolutely mental. But once again, it, it was due to 
the help of the the Academy Awards, like I said, it absolutely swept that year's Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Yeah. So it's just crazy what the what the Oscars well, can do. I I went to see it twice. Did you? Yeah. Um, even though I didn't particularly like it, <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not my like, um, it's not my type of film, but. So, because I thought, yeah, Titanic, it'll be about the events of the Titanic, and I didn't realise that it would have that kind of romantic romance, yeah. sub-story to it, which I didn't yeah. particularly oh, care Oh, I, I want the action. And it's a James Cameron film before it was going to yeah. be you know, action, but... But yeah. then I had to go, go see it again with uh, my wife. So <laughs> it is definitely... <laughs> yeah. And sit through it again. <laughs> Being as mental that it made. I mean, you know, it it, it is what it is. I can understand why it didn't make a lot of money. Um, Didn't didn't the um, didn't the song get an Oscar as well? Yeah, the song got an Oscar. Like I said, it got it. uh, It tied with fourteen. I I forgot what it tied with. Fourteen Oscar nominations, and it tied with the amount of Oscars won with Ben Hur. It won eleven of its fourteen. Because that helped to drive the film as well, didn't it? Yeah, the Celine Dion. So, oh yeah, yeah, it, it was huge, <laughs> wasn't it? And yeah, yeah it just I just still can't get even even nowadays when films are expected to hit the billion mark, I still yeah. can't get over how much money this film made in such a small amount of time. It's just mental. Well, that, like you say, it's about context. If you're if you're funding a film and it's costing like right like nowadays, two hundred million sometimes, yeah. you need to make obviously. At least half half yeah. a billion just to to be moderately well, successful. Thing. In 1997, this film was made on 200 million, which yeah. is like I said, that's not round average. It's it's quite a few films nowadays would have, be on 200 million. Yeah. But you when know. you take a film like Lost in Translation, for example, which I got the math wrong from, I'm sorry, budget of four million, it made 120. That's 30 times. Yeah. So a film that is 200. Say hundred million mm. would have to make thirty trillion to to be that you know to be that successful. So yeah, it's everything about context. So it's quite when you put it in the context, it's quite easy to see that it's a sleeper hit. But yeah. it's just when it made that much, this is it's so odd because it's it's almost like it stayed in the limelight for so long because like it it made twenty eight million. Sorry, 30 billion, not thirty <laughs> trillion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it made it made twenty eight million on on, a, on its opening weekend, which is yeah. I think at that that was just under Jurassic Park's level, and then it stayed in the limelight, but it just wasn't making as much money yeah. as they expected. And this is the thing: they made one hundred twenty million by the new year, but that still that still didn't get its budget back, did it? So no. that would still be considered a failure. The opening weekend tends to be the most important thing yeah. for judging how successful it's going to be. Um, and how many other theatres to show it in. Mm. I mean, there are films that have had a really strong opening weekend, but then just fizzled out. But then there's some that have gone on to really, really be big. But like I said, it, it, it from that initial stretch of the new year to like the Oscar season, yeah. it just won so much. It got so much um, box office returns. It's crazy. But yeah, that's why it's on my list. Yeah. Cool. That's interesting, actually, yeah. Uh, my next film is The King's Speech, um, which is uh, 2010, directed by Tom Holland. The budget was £15 million, uh, dollars, sorry, and it made $414 million. Um, and it's it's kind of a, a film that you wouldn't think would have mass appeal. No. 
Um, Colin Firth plays a future King George VI who, to cope with a stammer, he sees Lionel Logue, who's an Australian speech and language therapist, played by Geoffrey Rush. The men become friends as they work together, and after uh, George's brother's abdication from the throne, the new king relies on Logue to help him make his first wartime radio broadcast upon Britain's declaration of war on Germany in 1939. So again, it's not, it's not you know, what you would expect to be a blockbuster no. plot. Um, plus, you've got the director, Tom Holland, who actually came from TV. Um, he was most known for directing the, the British soap opera EastEnders, and the only film that he'd made before that was The Damned United, mm which is about Brian Clough's tenure as leading United manager in the 70s. Yeah. Um, there's a, a scene in the, in the film where it's, it's, there's a minute-long scene where Logue encourages the king to shout profanities, which he could do without a stammer. And that led to the British Board of Film Classification giving it a 15 certificate. So that obviously limited its um, audience then. Hooper criticised the decision... Um, questioning how the board could certify the film 15 for bad language but allow films such as Salt and Casino Royale to have a 12 A rating despite graphic torture scenes. And following this, the board lowered the rating to 12 A so that allowed children 12 and under um, to see the film if they're accompanied by an adult. Um, Hooper leveled the same criticism uh at the Motion Picture Association of America, which gave the film an R rating, preventing anyone under the age of 17 from seeing the film without an adult. And Miramax actually considered recutting the film to give, get a lower certificate or even bleeping out the, the swear words. Um, but Hooper resisted this. Um, the problem was that people loved this film, but they loved it only after they heard that other people had loved it. So it was pretty much... You know, word of mouth. The opening weekend, despite a limited release almost a month prior, it could only manage 11th place in the US domestic box office with 4 million, which is pretty disappointing. Mm. Uh, but as, as often is the case, when people get talking, and obviously the controversy of the this classification, you know, does help as well. Yeah. The, audi the audience figures started to increase, and obviously that post Oscar bump that you get. Mm. Because it won, uh, Colin Firth won an Oscar for Best Actor. It also won Best Picture, and so it helped to reverse. Because normally a film opens and then it it's kind of declines, but yeah. then the Oscars helped to get it over that bump and and start an upward um, trajectory. Again. Yeah, trajectory again, um, and it spent a lot a total of ten weeks in the top ten. Yeah. After that, well, this is the thing. Um, they may at the time of of thought that the fifteen. Certification um, would have done it harm, yeah. but the fact that there was all this drama yeah. going on around this film, people yeah. then go want to see it, don't they? They want to see what well, the... it's like. There's a lot of films that have, have had controver controversy around them, and that adds to people wanting to see yeah. it. Because <laughs> that, that, that's the thing. Any little bit of drama surrounding a film, it's going to make people yeah. want to go and see it, doesn't it? So. Yeah. It actually maybe helped it in its in its yeah. one bar. That's one of those that was really helped by word of mouth because people liked it, but 
they waited for other people to see it and then right, tell yeah. them what it, you know that it was good. And then they go and see yeah, it. Yeah, they go and see start it. Start off that chain And reaction. then obviously with the Oscars, then that gave it a little increase yeah. as well. I didn't realise it won Best Picture. I knew yeah. we won, Colin Firth won Best Actor, but I didn't realise it won Best Picture. Yeah. So, yeah, that's obviously going to put people yeah. back into the cinema to watch it, isn't it? But so. It was sort of a very British film with yeah, a very it was. British story, and it, it was a risk because obviously, you know, how would that be? Rec- I know sort of Americans tend to love royalty in that, but would that, you know, and, and if it's released alongside other films that. Yeah, like I said, it's it's not yeah. the most exciting like no. plot as in terms of, and like you said, it's 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 got like a dark filter on yeah. it. It's just very very British, but maybe that helped it as well. Yeah. You never know. But it so. does. It's got that feel good factor as well. Yeah. which does help. Yeah, and it's a good film as yeah. well. So, right. Um, my next film was Casino Royale. Uh, Casino Royale was a 2006 spy film, the 21st in the Eon Productions James Bond series, and a third screen adaptation of Ian Fleming's 1953 novel with the same name. Directed by Martin Campbell and written by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade and Paul Haggis, is the first film to star Daniel Craig as the fictional MI6 agent James Bond. Casino Royale takes place at the beginning of Bond's career as Agent 007, as he is earning his license to kill. The plot has Bond on an assignment to bankrupt terrorist financier Le Chiffre in a high-stakes poker game at the Casino Royale in Montenegro. Bond falls in love with Vesper Lind, a treasury employee assigned to provide the money he needs for the game. And now Casino Royale was made on a budget of $150 million. It made $616.5 million for total grosses $465.2 million. Casino Royale premiered at the Odeon Leicester Square on 14th of November 2006. It received an overwhelmingly positive critical response with reviewers highlighting Craig's reinvention of the character and the film's departure from the tropes of previous Bond films. The reason why Casino Royale was considered a sleep hit is because it once again made its money over a stretched period of time. In the UK and mainland Europe, it was a critical and financial success, becoming one of the highest earning films ever on the continent. While it made $40 million in its opening day weekend in the US, it was only shown on some 350 cinemas across the country. This was due to the success of Happy Feet coming out. Once word of mouth spread about the film, more people went to see it. This high demand caused more cinemas to show it, and therefore it made the bulk of its money. I find it really odd, because even in the US, the reviews were overwhelmingly positive. Happy Feet had its time, but in the long run, Casino Royale won the battle. So it's another thing where it's going against another film, and and of course, totally, to, totally different film. Yeah, it's odd. Like I, I think, um, I think the reason why is because you know, um, kids obviously they're going to go see Happy Feet. P- parents they're going to take their kids to Happy Feet. You're not going to mm-hmm. take it to a James Bond film, but. Then when people saw these reviews, I mean James Bond will always be big. Well, I think it was a, James. I think that film was a twelve A. So parents, I mean, you will get parents yeah. who love James Bond will take their kids along. I think. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So, well, like I said, it was, it was um, for that summer. It was the the case of two huge films going against each other, and even though Happy Feet, in the short term, was was more successful in the long run. Casino Royale made its money back and then some, and it made a de- decent profit, you know, for 450 mm-hmm. million, which was lows at the time. It made a decent profit. Um, it still probably could have, could have made more, but yeah, it, it, a lot of it was down to its success in Europe as well. So in Europe, it was absolutely huge. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was the number one film, but in America, it took a, took a decent while. But yeah, it, it 
inevitably won. It beat Happy Feet and became the biggest film of 2006. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so this is my penultimate one. Um, and it's it's hard to believe that this film was a surprise hit, and that's Jaws. Yeah. Uh, the 1975, I guess you'd describe it as horror film now. Yeah. Uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. Had a budget of nine million and it made four hundred and seventy two million at the box office. And you know, by now we should all know the story of Jaws. It's great white shark, stakes a claim off of Amity Island, killing several bathers. This prompts the police chief Martin Brody to hunt it down with the help of a marine biologist Matt Hooper and a professional shark hunter Quint. Um so Richard Zanuck, David Brown, um, they were producers at Universal Studios. They actually purchased the right to the film, to the book, sorry, to Peter Benchley's book, Jaws, in 1973 for $175,000. And this was before the book was even published, so it's one of those, again. Yeah, Apple's quite a... Yeah. Um, they initially considered John Sturgis to direct it, so he did Magnificent Seven, Great Escape, well, they instead gave the job to a guy called Dick Richards, who just completed a film for them called The Cold Pepper Kettle Company. It's a mouthful. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they dropped him from the project as he kept referring to the shark as, a, as the whale. So that annoyed them. So, they <laughs> so anyway, they, had a, uh, they were having a meeting with Steven Spielberg. He just completed uh, the Sugarland Express for them. And he'd noticed the book in their office. He read it. He was captivated in way to do it because he felt it had a similar theme to the to his earlier TV film Jewel. Yeah. About this sort of leviathan that's targeting the everyman. Um, he then had actually had cold feet about it because he didn't want to be known as the truck and shack director, and he was going to go to Fox and make Lucky Lady. Um, but he was actually under contract to Universal for two pictures, so. Brown helped convince him to stay with the project, and he said to him that after Jaws, you can make all the films you want, which is pretty true, yeah. I think. <laughs> um, it was given an estimated budget of $3.5 million and a, a shooting schedule of 55 days. Um, principal photography was set to begin in May 1974, and Universal wanted the shoot to finish by the end of June when the major studio's contract with the Screen Actors Guild was due to expire because they didn't want to have any disruption due to strikes or anything like that. Um, this was the first major film to be shot on the ocean, and it resulted in famously troubled shoot. And Spielberg said that it's probably his naivety that led to that. Um, he was kind of a first-time director. Um, he'd never worked with sort of, you know, anim animatronics, um special effects like that and it never worked on the ocean before um so the budget started to climb from an initial four million to nine million um actually three million of that went on to the shark which was just didn't work the film filming wrapped on 6th of october 1974 after 159 days and after this, Spielberg thought his career was over. He said, Nobody, nobody's gone over 100 days over schedule before. Um, but Universal persevered, and they 
They spent hundred, sorry, one point eight million dollars on marketing jars, including seven hundred thousand on national television blitz advertising. So two days before its opening, they spent, like I say, seven hundred thousand pound dollars, sorry, on um, two dozen thirty-second advertisements airing each night on primetime TV. Now this had been unprecedented before the amount of marketing put into this film. Um, the film opened on uh, 20th of June. Now, this again was unusual because most films opened sort of around holidays, so Christmas was a big one, yeah, etc. Um, and unlike unlike the traditional way of opening a film, you open in you know small number of theaters and then you increase it. Um, it had wide national release, backed by heavy television advertising. Um, so on the 20th of June, Jaws opened across the USA on 409 screens. It made $7 million in its opening weekend, $21 million in its first week, which easily recouped its production costs. And a lot of people put it down to the timing of the release. This showed studios that there, were, there was more money to be made during the summer um, than other times of the year. So this was this actually created that summer movie season, mm. and this was considered the first summer blockbuster. Yeah, and it did a lot to help yeah. this, didn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so traditionally, uh, you'll find a lot of big films will get released around that um, end of June. You know that that sort of week, twentieth, twenty, you know, fifth June. Mm. Um, and that is now like the summer blockbuster season. So if you think, when you release it on the holiday times, it's cold, people don't want to yeah. go out, they want to spend time with their family, and, and just summertime has a much bigger window for yeah. people to go out and see it, and they want well, to go I reckon, out. Like, you, you've got kids who are on, on holiday from school, they're bored, so they go to the cinema, you've got people who want to get out of the sun, yeah. go to the cinema. Yeah, so people tend, tend to have a lot more time off around, around uh, summertime. So yeah, no, yeah. and it's it's hard to believe now that it it, it was a doubt, uh, and I mean, given uh, initially a, a four million dollar budget, it was really nothing at all no. back then. Um, I, I, I just don't get how people can make a film <laughs> that that much. You know, you got first off, you got to pay the stars. Yeah, you got you got to pay all the all the production like people involved. You got yeah. to buy the sets. You got to rent out places and stuff. It just well, a lot of actors. What they do is they'll they'll have a smaller upfront payment and then take a percentage of the profits. Yeah. So they're kind of, um, they're tied into the film being a success. So a lot was riding yeah. on this film, yeah. So. No, very interesting. Yeah. And I think had it not been successful, then maybe it would have killed Spielberg's yeah, career. Yeah, we never got his last, yeah. <laughs> loads of his films. It's crazy how things work like that, <laughs> isn't it? But, um, yeah. right, my next film is Die Hard with a Vengeance. And, um, it's a 1995 American action thriller buddy film directed by John McTiernan. It was released by Jonathan Hensley based on the screenplay Simon Says by Hensley himself. The film stars Bruce Willis as NYPD Lieutenant John McClane and Samuel Jackson as McClane's reluctant partner, Zeus Carver, who teams up to stop bomb threats across New York City carried out by Simon, played by Jeremy Irons. It was released on May 19th, 1995 to mix reviews and became the highest grossing film of the year. So it made 
It was made on a budget of $90 million. It made $366 million for a total gross of $276 million. There are only a few reasons that caused this film to come, become a sleeper hit. The first is that it released to universal, da- to universal damning reviews, with the overall critic score 6 out of 10. It wasn't a film people were, were reeling to get off their seat for. Another reason is because of the second one being a disappointment. The first one is generally considered to be one of the greatest action films of all time. The second one, not so much. People expected the third to follow in the trend of worsening quality. 1995 just happened to be a great year for films such as Seven, Apollo 13, Heat, Braveheart, etc. It came up against stiff competition. It was only after people watched the film and saw how good it was that word spread and it ended the year as the highest grossing film. It's just crazy how, how... I don't get... Like, I don't know if his critics are over, like, analysing the film, but, like, this, when it first came out, this film was not, it was universally panned by critics, and once again, it kept people from going to see it, and once again, Die Hard 2, it's, it's not a movie, it isn't the best, is it? And people no. thought, bringing the further one out would follow the downward trajectory yeah. of this, the, well, the film's... That's what happens, isn't it? Usually, sequels aren't as good as their original. No. Um Die Hard was great. They, you know, and what tends to happen is they'll rush out a sequel to, mm. to capitalise on the success of the original film. Again, and, it, I mean, Die Hard Two is not a bad film. No, it's, it's just not Die Hard. No, and then I guess people then you've got Die Hard with a Vengeance, which came out how long no, after? It came out five years after. So the five years number after two. after number two. So it might not even been that relevant, yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? But yeah, it just I'm guessing it sort of came out of nowhere. Took people off, um, yeah. like caught people off guard, and yeah, I don't, I just don't at, at the start with the critics and, and everything. And number two, I don't think people were really rushing to get yeah. to the cinema to watch it, but then when people realize because it's actually a really good film, isn't it? Yeah. With Vengeance, that's the problem with filmmaking, you know, half, half. Half the battle is getting the film made yeah. and half the battle is getting it shown in cinemas and people going to see it. Yeah. And if people don't go and see it, then um, it's just not going to be a success. But like I said, it made no money in its in, in the first half, but then yeah. when people realised how good it was, it made a... I mean, it beat out, like I said, Seven Apollo 13, Heat, yeah. Braveheart, it beat all of them to become the highest grosser film of that year. Yeah, so, you know, so, it's crazy yeah. how these things happen. Yeah. Right. All right. On to your last. So... We can't finish a podcast without mentioning this yeah, film. Yeah, because we are absolutely nerds um, of this film. And that would be Star Wars, the 1977 space opera fantasy directed by George Lucas. Uh, the budget for this uh, was finally $11 million and it made at the box office $775 million. Um, the film, for those who haven't seen Star Wars... <laughs> The film follows the journey of Luke Skywalker, a simple farm boy who becomes caught in the galactic conflict between the Empire and the Rebellion. After coming into possession of two droids, R2-D2 and C-3PO, who are carrying the schematics of the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star. While attempting to deliver the droids to the Rebellion, Luke is joined by Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi, who teaches him about the metaphysical power known as the Force. Cynical smuggler Han Solo, his Wookiee companion Chewbacca, and Rebellion leader Princess Leia. Meanwhile, Imperial officers Darth Vader, a Sith Lord, and Grand Moff Tarkin, the commander of the Death Star, seek to retrieve the stolen schematics and locate the Rebellion's secret base. And that covers it pretty much, doesn't it? Yeah, basically, yeah. So, you know, 
in this day and age when pretty much you can't turn the TV on or, or turn around without some kind of Star Wars like reference, yeah, reference it? Yeah. yeah. It's hard to believe that this was considered a box office risk. But it was very much so when A New Hope was in production. So we kind of have to go back to the beginning for this. So George Lucas had the idea for a space fantasy film in 1971 after completing his first feature film, which was THX 1138, which was a, a box office bomb. THX 1138 started off, it was a 20-minute a student film that he'd made when he was at UCLA. And he uh, was offered um, a first feature film with Francis Ford Coppola's American Zoetrope production company, and he chose to expand THX 1138 to be a feature film. And it bombed at the box office. Um, the studio, um, because of the controversies surrounding, I think there was a nudity in the film, the studio demanded that their money be returned and that almost bankrupt American Zoetrope. So that's where, <laughs> where he was at that yeah. time. Um, he really wanted to make Flash Gordon, but the rights were owned by Dino De Laurentiis and he, he just couldn't get, the, get De Laurentiis to sell him the rights to it. So he decided that he'd write his own. Um, at that time, he had a two-film development deal with United Artists. The two films were American Graffiti and a space opera tentatively titled The Star Wars, inspired by Flash Gordon. Lucas went to a United Artist, showed them the script for American Graffiti, but they passed on the film, which was then picked up by Universal Pictures. United Artists also passed on Lucas's space opera concept, which he then shelved for the time being. So he spent the next two years completing American Graffiti. Lucas turned his attention to his space opera. He spent four months writing and presenting a 13-page treatment to United Artists who passed. Universal, the studio that financed American Graffiti, while they agreed it could be a very commercial venture, their doubts about Lucas's ability to pull it off, so they also passed. So Universal actually had doubts about Lucas as a director, and that's why they passed on it. Francis Ford Coppola, who probably should have never spoken to Lucas again, <laughs> <laughs> actually brought the project to a division of Paramount Pictures where he ran it with fellow directors Peter Bogdanovich and William Freakin. But Freakin questioned Lucas's ability to direct the film, and he, along with Bogdanovich, declined to back it. So again, they questioned Lucas's directorial ability. And interestingly enough, he took it to Walt Disney Productions. I didn't realise he took the Disney. Turned it down. And they probably kicking themselves down. <laughs> they could have saved themselves, what, four billion dollars? Four billion, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Lucas took it to 20th Century Fox. Um, and Alan Ladd Jr., who was the head of Fox at the time, in June 73, um, he signed him on to direct the film. Although Ladd did not grasp the technical side of the project, he believed that Lucas was talented. Lucas later stated that Ladd invested in me, he did not invest in the movie. So the deal gave Lucas $150,000 to write and direct the film. The initial budget given to them was $5 million, which was later increased to $8.25 million. Now, you put that in context, Crossing Cards of the Third Kind, which was released at the same time, had a budget of $19.5 million. 
So it was a really, really low budget film. Yeah. And Lucas sold it on that concept that it was going to be like a Roger Corman type low budget film. But the problem was that despite Lucas's efforts, his crew had little interest in the film. Most of the crew considered the project a children's film and they rarely took their work seriously. Most of the cast thought it would be a failure. Uh, they had no real faith in Lucas as a director. He rarely spoke to the actors who believed that he expected too much of them while providing little direction. His direction to the actors usually consisted of the words faster and more intense. Yep. He was described as very much a loner, very shy, didn't like large groups of people, didn't like working with a large crew, didn't like working with a lot of actors. So you kind of think it's an odd profession to go into. Um, and subsequently, the, the film, they had to reassess their budget. Uh, they were running out of money. Um, so after requests for more money, the executives got a bit scared. And so essentially for two weeks, Lucas and his crew didn't really do anything except put together new budget figures. At the same time, after the production fell behind schedule, Lad told Lucas he had to finish the production within a week or he would be forced to shut down the production. So it came to sort of the climax where they needed you know, they needed more money, they'd gone over schedule, and they were a week off the project being shut down, which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> So it came out to be like something like nine, 9.8 million. And in the end, they just said, yes, that's okay, we'll go ahead. And to complete filming, they actually had to split into three units yeah. and work sort of 24 hours a day almost. But they managed to complete it. And that's not where the problems ended. Um, Lucas was going to use 20th Century Fox's visual effects department, but found it being disbanded. So he had to create his own industrial light and magic. Um, and they were essentially starting from scratch, trying to develop this these cutting-edge special effects. Um, Star Wars was originally slated for a release on Christmas 76. However, its production delays pushed the film's release to mid-1977. Industrial Light and Magic had spent half of its budget on four shots that Lucas deemed unacceptable, with hundreds of unaccomplished shots remaining, ILM was forced to finish a year's work in six months. In February 1977, Lucas screened an early cut of the film for Fox executives and several director friends. The cut used Prowse's voice for Darth Vader. It also lacked most of the special effects. The reactions of the directors present, such as Brian De Palma, John Milius and Steven Spielberg, disappointed Lucas. But in contrast, Ladd and the other studio executives loved it, which is kind of amazing, really. Yeah. Um, the, the the original crawl text when they saw it they said oh it's too long doesn't make any sense so actually Brian De Palma re reworked that for for Lucas so you could say that Star Wars um, isn't really Lucas's film it was like a group yeah and a lot of his director project. friends gave their own input and, yeah you know and so they all you know had some input into it was it also well. like Ron Howard on set as well wasn't he um, I think he visited the set yeah yeah uh, yeah, it's odd that you know his friends and other film people didn't didn't like it, but the actual executives loved it. Um, the budget had now climbed to eleven million dollars. Yeah, uh, they were worried that Star Wars would be beaten out by other summer films such as Smoking the Bandit. So rather than open it in June, which would be traditional for a summer film, they moved the release date to the twenty fifth of May, which is a Wednesday before. 
Memorial Day. But it just shows all along the project how much lack of faith yeah, the film. film companies had in it, the actors, the uh, excuse me, the crew, and even the, the film company itself. Um, fewer than 40 theatres ordered the film to be shown. And so Star Wars debuted on Wednesday, the 25th of May, 1977, in fewer than 32 theatres, and eight more on Thursday and Friday. Because George Lucas strongly believed that his film would be a flop, he skipped the premiere and went on holiday to Hawaii with Steven Spielberg. So even he didn't have faith in his own film. <laughs> and ironically, on this holiday, this is where they developed the idea for Indiana Jones. Oh, I didn't realise that. So, yeah. Oh. Um, and just to go to show, Fox had so little faith in Lucas that he elect, he was he was due another payment, five hundred thousand dollar fee for directing Star Wars, and he gave it up in exchange for the merchandising and sequel rights. And Fox either not showing any foresight or just being so so little faith in, in the, yeah. the success of Star Wars. They, they gave it up. They to gave him, it up to him. Yeah, which is a huge huge yeah. mistake. But in its first six days, it earned two point five million dollars. Across 43 screens, which isn't a bad return. No, it's not bad, no. It was number one at the box office for three weeks. They gradually added screens, returning to number one and spending 15 weeks at the top. It earned $220 million in its initial theatrical run. And six months into its release, it had overtaken Jaws as the highest earning film in North America. So... That's that's pretty pretty bizarre when you think Mental about that, it. Mental, just the amount of things that went against yeah. this the, this film. But the fact is that they've said, you know, a lot of them said, with our faith in you as a director, we don't think you're a very good director, um, which personally I don't think he is, but, you no. know, I think he kind of looked out. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, but again, it's maybe just, he caught the, the public imagination at the right time. Well, we, we always sell the Tom where... The seventies was filled with disaster flicks and really yeah, depressing so, movies. Yeah, you, had, you had films about the the, the dystopian future, mm. and it was all negative. And the thing is that that was the concept of THX eleven thirty eight was a futuristic negative film. Yeah, and so he made. That's probably why he wanted to make like a campy Flash Gordon sort of film. Just it, a little bit more upbeat, more humour in it as well. A just bit more came positive at the right time, well. didn't it? Yeah, this thing. Maybe had stars come out nowadays, it might have been panned. You yeah. never know. It just came out at the right time, right place. Right Back then time, they and... said, you know, science fiction is dead, and he's trying to explain them. It's not really science fiction. It's more of a fantasy yeah. kind of space opera. Um, but, yeah, it's bizarre to think that that against all the odds, that it, I mean, that is and it made so the much one money. film that had everything against it that just made so much money. Yeah. Well, it, it's... After inflation, it's still... I believe the highest grossing film of all time. Yeah. So, yeah. and just the spin-off and the merchandise. Yeah. I mean, the merchandise alone is worth you know billions. Well, this is the thing: the merchandise has actually made more money. They've made more money off the merchandise than they have the films. Yeah. So it was, it was just goes to show that Fox were wrong to not have so, so little faith yeah. and give the sequel rights to George Lucas. But yeah. ah, very interesting. And there's like I said. A, I like to think of myself as a Star Wars buff, but I didn't. Even, there was yeah. a few things in there I didn't realise. There's, there's so much more as well. I could have done on yeah. and on and on and on. Yeah, and we on can talk for, for ages hours about yeah. the, the problems that they had and and things like that. But no, it's, you can it's, tell we're both our favourite yeah. film franchises, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, my last film was Iron Man. 
and Iron Man is a 2008 American superhero film based on the Marvel Comics character of the same name. Produced by Marvel Studios and distributed by Paramount Pictures, it is the first film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, better known as the MCU. Directed by John Favreau from a screenplay by the writing teams of Mark Ferguson, Hawk Otsby, and the art Markham and Matt Holloway. The film stars Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark and Iron Man, alongside Terrence Howard, Jeff Bridges, Sean Tube, I think that's how you say his name, and Gwyneth Paltrow. In the film, following his escape from captivity by a terrorist group, world-famous industrious and master engineer Tony Stark builds a me- mechanised suit of armour and becomes a superhero Iron Man. It was made on a budget of $140 million. It made $585.8 million for a total gross of $448 million. Iron Man premiered in Sydney on April 14, 2008 and was released in the United States on May 2nd as the first film in, the f- in Phase 1 of the MCU. Now, there's quite a few like different reasons why this film was considered a sleeper hit and why it wasn't you know, this huge, like, nowadays it's, it's any superhero film. Like, they are, we're in the age of superhero films, aren't yeah, we, really? definitely, yeah. And they go in, easily go into the billions, but it's it's it really didn't make that much money in its first, like, initial run. Um, there's many reasons for this. Uh, Marvel films before this, for example, like the Fantastic Four, one and two were critically panned and are considered to be one some of the worst superhero films and just films in general were ever made. And maybe people thought that this was going to follow the same tropes and be tropes and be a huge disappointment like the previous ones. Like I said, um, Marvel was was always known as more of the campy yeah. side of superhero movies, yeah. where DC. So I just to say. Um... Wasn't Iron Man sort of surprise for people because he wasn't like yeah, a, main, was, a major character in, so, in the comic books. So, um, that like like celebrities, there's a tier system to superheroes, and uh, like tier A superheroes like Batman, Superman, and Spider Man, and Iron Man, like all, all of them are now considered A because they're huge, but back then, because you think this is what. 13 years ago yeah and yeah. back then Iron Man was maybe considered a C tier or B tier right. was not famous yeah. in the slightest compared to Spider-Man Superman yeah. Batman and it was a very odd decision for them to I, I still don't even know why they went they decided to go with Iron Man maybe because he's the leader of, of Avengers but yeah that, that was a very weird choice people people would have thought I mean they couldn't get Spider-Man because they didn't hold mm. the rights to him Sony did Sony wasn't he yeah but you think they start off with with I don't know Captain America or something yeah. like that, but maybe he, he was just the uh, yeah, but Iron Man was definitely nowhere near the and the, the, or even Hulk. I know they've had well, perhaps it's the fact that that they ha- Iron Man hasn't had any previous films. It only had like a TV film, yeah. and it looked ridiculous. It looked like something out Whereas, of Doctor Who. You know, Spider Man is a well-known character. Had lots of films. Like the Tom McGuire yeah. ones are huge. Hulk has had a few films. Yeah. So maybe they wanted to maybe start with like yeah, it could have been maybe. Slate, but obviously they've done it right. Yeah. But, um, yeah, like I said, they, people, it was coming off a long list of, of quite bad Marvel films. Like I said, DC are more of the gritty down to like, um, like realistic mm. films. And, uh, Obviously, that same year, The Dark Knight came out and it made over a billion. And people thought that this film had no chance, you know, compared to that. Uh, another one is Robert Downey Jr. himself, the cast of him. I mean, even back then, he was a huge name. He's been, he was a 
he was an A-list celebrity for years, but obviously his past like, problems, personal issues, yeah, yeah, personal issues off screen caused him to maybe not at that time reach the heights you'd think he would. Uh, so it was a, he was hot off the, I think he got cast on this film from Zodiac because they liked how he how he was and he could see see the personality because this is the thing. It just happened to be that Robert Downey Jr., his personality is like how Tony Stark's is as well and that's one of the main reasons why he got the part. Um, but yeah, he wasn't exactly the most, um, like I said, he was, he was still an A-tier celebrity, like, but he just wasn't the most like relevant leading man at that point, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and plus the MCU as well. The, the whole MCU thing, people... Like, you, like once again, every film franchise has its own universe now, but that was a very new concept, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Really, it started with the MCU. It mm-hmm. really did. Um, people couldn't quite get their head around a shared yeah, universe with different films. At that point, you just had, this, you had the standalone films yeah. that would have sequels, but then there was no real, like, crossover. No, no. It was, like I said, it was a very new thing. Yeah. Um, and I just I don't I don't think people either thought it was going to fail or it it just wasn't that interesting, because um, they knew it was going to be this whole phase one thing and then the phase two thing, but I don't know if people just d- didn't know what they were in for basically, and plus the fact that it was Marvel themselves direct uh, producing the film, like Marvel Studios itself, because. In the late nineties, they were really they were going bankrupt, and they had to sell all their assets, like um, their most profitable superheroes. So they sold Fantastic Four, Spider Man, Hulk, you name it. They sold them, and it was like other mo- other film studios made the movies. So like Sony made them. Sony bought Spider Man. They made Spider Man. Someone else bought Fantastic Four. Think, they made Fantastic Four. I think I remember reading that when. When Sony bought Spider Man, they had the option to buy all the other. Yeah, they did. Um, they only wanted Spider Man because yeah, he was the only real relevant they only one. Spider Man, so they lost out on. Lost out on that, but yeah, it, it just. I think basically what happened, what what helped this film was the fact that it's a really good film, and it's considered literally it's considered one of the best uh, superhero films ever made, and for it to come out the same year as The Dark Knight, it held its own, and it kicked off probably the biggest. After Star Wars, or maybe even, big, you know, some people it's bigger, but probably the biggest film franchise ever now. So, um, this film was pivotal in that, and well, it, people, certainly, it certainly dropped the campy aspects of yeah, previous 100%. films, and is, is a a bit of a darker film, darker character, isn't it? Yeah, well. but this this thing, um, I think once again, when people actually eventually went and saw the film, they realised how good the film was, and they realised, okay, this is the direction they're taking it. It's long gone is, is the base, basically shit we got before this with Marvel and we're taking it in this direction and they just rolled with it and then obviously they brought out the other superhero movie um, the character films and then they brought out the Avengers and so on and now it's like I said it's the biggest the biggest films in the world now aren't they so it's just interesting how, how they had, uh, even even from the studio Marvel had really really big doubts about starting with Iron Man, but really, who, who else could they have started with? Yeah, like I say, I mean, it may be that the fact that, you know... Um, Again, Iron, Anna Pryor. Yeah, Iron Man had no history. People had no connection to Iron Man. No. Um, and they could start from a clean yeah. slate then, can't so, they? Because a lot of the times when, you, when you're when doing a, a remake, of say say with the Sam Raimi Spider-Man and yeah. the new ones, you're going to have people who loved the Sam Raimi ones who don't really warm to the new ones. Yeah. 
So because they've you know they've got a history with that character and that franchise. I tell you, they like I said, I think it was over in the seventies or the eighties. There was a TV, like it was over a TV show, or movie, and Iron Man was he do um. He looked between the Dalek and a Cyberman. He looked yeah. like that. It was <laughs> ridiculous. So I don't think people had any prior connections, like you said, to the to. Yeah. Because people have a, you know, people they'll have a history with the franchise. They'll like they'll like a franchise, and sometimes they're resistant to 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 newer films. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, this is this is the reason why why it made its money over a stretch period of time. So. Well, it's been a long one today, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. no, it's been good. It's been good, very good. Yeah, um, that's it from us today. Um, all that's left for me to say is thank you for joining us. Um, you can uh, find other content. We do have uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, uh, YouTube, and also our website, filmgeezers.com. Well, we've we've reviewed a quite a place too on there, so if you want to see a brand new movie review, yeah. go out and see that. Yeah, we'll be reviewing Nobody as well today, so that'll be on there probably tomorrow. Um, again, just thanks, thanks for listening, and hope to see you next week. Thank you. Goodbye.